Hi, I'm Valerie, and this is episode 181 of The Beauty Brains. Beauty Brains, a show where real scientists answer your beauty questions and give you an insider's look at the beauty product industry. I'm your host, Valerie George, and with me today is my co-host, Perry Romanowski. Hey, Perry. Hello, Valerie. Hope you're ready to answer some questions today about whether or not expired or fermented milk from the kitchen can be used as a DIY toner. Should you be worried about shrimp in products? Do we need a spatula or scoop for skincare products? And what makes Maybelline lip gloss work so well? Ooh, lip gloss. Yummy. (laughs) I'm not sure how much lip gloss you've used, but it's an excellent set of questions today. I was always a fan of that. uh, When I was growing up, I was always a fan of that Carmex product. I just just like the taste of it. Not that I ate it, but (laughs) I just always put it on. I always loved using the tube with the domed orifice. I always had that in my bag in high school. Yes, I, I rather enjoyed when they put that together. Although, you know, I I think that they must have changed the formula when they put it in there because it seemed a little uh, less solid or something. Yeah, it definitely um, had a little more seepage. I, I Not that it was unstable, but I could tell that it had a lower melting point, you know, reflecting back. Of course, I didn't know this when I was in high school when I would throw in my LLB and book bag. But when I would take it out of the backpack and, and put it on, I could tell that there was a little more moisture to it, fake moisture. I think I overcame my uh, lip balm addiction, though, because I don't really use it much anymore. I just use it at night before I go to bed. Well, speaking of using products, why don't we get into uh, some beauty science news? <laughs> Well, this is one product you won't want to use if you have a lot number that's affected. Herbivore had a moldy face cream and elected to do a recall at Sephora and other beauty retailers wherever they're selling affected lot numbers. Fast Company actually did a little expose on the incident, and you were interviewed in the article, right? I was interviewed. Uh, One of the reporters uh, had read something about a specific preservative through a Reddit discussion, and that sort of led to the article. And so they they contacted me as their expert, because apparently I know about such things. And indeed, I did know about this preservative and this particular incident. Yeah, it's very unfortunate when a brand has to do a recall. It's kind of embarrassing, um, damages the brand a little bit. And Perry, can you recap the herbivore incident for the listeners who haven't read the article? Oh, well, essentially what was happening, uh, the the reporter, I think, was reviewing something on Reddit, and a lot of people on Reddit were complaining about their herbivore product being moldy or having growth in it, and then that actually came to the attention of the FDA, not necessarily through that Reddit discussion, but some consumers tipped off the FDA, and that led to the company recalling products that actually had this this certain lot number due to contamination. To me, this is just an incidence of just terrible preservative formulating. Really, you should not have these kinds of problems if you're using proper preservatives. Although there are some issues, and that can be with your contract manufacturer. So if that could have been a problem with them too. Yeah, it's and it very well could be a two-pronged approach. The preservative they're using could be not an amazing preservative for the type of format. It's definitely not a robust preservative. 
this is one of the problems that I have with this whole tendency to avoid parabens. I mean, the problem is that the substitutes, they just don't work as well. No. And manufacturing is very tough. You're in, a, in an environment where there's lots of water splashing around, residual water in tanks, hoses, lines, and where there's water, microorganisms can grow. And if you're not using a robust preservative and or your manufacturing facility isn't doing due diligence to maintain a hygienic facility, again, cosmetics don't have to be sterile. They just can't be dirty or adulterated in that double approach of, hey, I don't have a good preservative and hey, my manufacturer isn't great. And again, I I don't know where herbivore manufacturers, I don't know if this is the case, you're going to have challenges. And mold is something that's challenging to preserve against anyway. Right. I know of a manufacturer back a bunch of years ago where they, in their manufacturing lines, they developed a biofilm, which they were not able to clear out. And one of the strategies for solving that problem was that they just added uh, Kathon to all of their formulas. And Kathon is a, just a preservative that just happened to kill this in-house bacteria. I, it, it always was a wonder to me why they had multiple preservatives in there because it seemed to me that was overkill. And that was the reason because this was the only thing that would kill the biofilm that had developed on some of their lines. Oh, gosh. And you can't use Kathon in everything. I want to explain a term that you meant called, um, I think how I think you use the term house bug. So for our listeners, every manufacturer, again, cosmetics aren't sterile. They're constantly using water to clean facilities, um, lines, hoses, tanks, all that sort of stuff. And so you naturally, where anything in the world exists, you have microorganisms. And the goal is to sort of keep them at bay, but the reality is they exist in the facility somewhere. And every facility has a unique ecosystem where these organisms can exist. So when you are developing products, it's important to keep in mind where you're manufacturing because the reality is some preservation systems work better in different facilities than others. And that could be what was going on here. Maybe this particular preservative system just didn't uh, work well with the particular microbes at this manufacturing facility. Yeah, well, that's unfortunate. Sorry to hear for them that they had this issue, and I hope that they open their minds to using more robust preservation systems to keep their consumers safe. I look forward to a day when beauty brands do not use which preservative they use as a marketing position. Make your products (laughs) safe, people. Well, um, I know we said we wouldn't talk about weather today, but I can see that you have snow in your background still, and it's almost May. Can you believe it? It snows on April 27th. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I only bring this up because uh, one of the articles I read this week was from GCI Magazine, and they've predicted that climate beauty is a trend that people are going to start to see. Well, what does that mean? So, A, I think it's a term they made up. I'm not sure. But the premise of climate beauty is that products are created for your skin type based on the season of the year, climate, environment you're experiencing. And uh, a quote from them is, brands are acknowledging that seasons, etc., dictate our needs. So we all know that skin gets dry in the winter. So essentially in this climate beauty marketing approach, a brand would provide a product specifically targeted to winter skin or in Perry's case, spring skin, <laughs> yeah. if, if the brand is selling in Chicago. And additionally, the line could uh, be designed to 
treat extreme environmental conditions like extremely polluted air if you live in a very polluted geography, or even maybe if you are traveling and experiencing different climates. So for a hair care line, maybe if you're traveling to Georgia, you need something for extreme humidity, but then if you fly up north to Maine, uh, you don't need that product, so you could select something from their portfolio. And I don't think anything new is created here. I think this sort of has always existed, and I know that I personally rotate products depending on what season I'm in and how dry my skin is. It's probably why I own so many products, Uh, but I I think it's interesting they're putting a, a term to this. This is just another way, in my view, of a way to slice the market a bit more uh, to create products where one product would work, but they want to sell you four products, so they'll sell you four four different products. Uh, it's very difficult for cosmetic marketers, quite frankly, to come up with new products because they're not coming up with new technologies, right? I know it's some of the stories are sold as new technologies, but I look at the way cosmetics are, personal care products are, and the technologies have not changed that much in in decades. And so when you when technology isn't changing, the only thing that you can do is change your marketing story. And to me, this is taking a little bit of actual science because it's true skin does feel differently at different under different environmental conditions. Uh, but to say that what you could ch- you could formulate a product specifically for the in- environment that or the season that you're in, I'm I'm skeptical. I think. Uh, the summer product would work just as well in the winter as the winter product will work in the summer. Well, I think, too, there are so many different regions of the world, seasons. Yes. Uh, it just seems really complex, and the technology exists anyway. I think we're already doing this, even if we're unaware of it, or maybe we are aware of it. People um, being consumers are already doing this. So I just thought it was interesting that they... They finally put a term to it. Um, I don't know if we'll see anything come out of it. I do know they mentioned some specific brands that are doing it, but we'll see. Well, these trend companies like to come up with trends. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's move on to beauty questions, Perry. So I'm excited. We have a couple audio questions today. Uh, We've mentioned on every episode that we love your audio questions. They're very easy to record from your phone device. We plug them into the show and we answer your questions. And guess what? Your question is guaranteed to be answered when you submit an audio question. So please do. Right. Guaranteed eventually. Um, and <laughs> and yeah, so you record it and then you send it uh, to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. Okay. So our first question, Perry hit play. Okay. Hi, Beauty Prince. This is EJ from Pakistan, and I'm so glad that you're back on air. The question I have for you is lactic acid is a huge trend in the skincare industry. For someone who wants to do a DIY treatment, can they use milk or expired milk as a substitute lactic acid treatment? Uh, I've tried to look online and I've not been able to find the percentage of lactic acid that exists in maybe raw milk or commercial milk. If we were to use a DIY treatment, what are the amounts that we could use to potentially replace commercial or over-the-counter products? Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Wow, what a great question, especially uh, considering that lots of people 
on the DIY scene are trying to take items from their kitchen and make these homemade cosmetic concoctions. It's a little scary to me, to tell you the truth. Yeah, it can be. Well, fun tidbit about me, before I even knew that cosmetic science was a field, I actually was interested in food science. And this was after I even uh, went to grad school and I discovered food science was a a thing. And I was thinking about going back to school to get a degree in food science because I found it so interesting, uh, specifically cheese making. But... Um, so I was excited by this question today because it, it talks about milk, which has an incredibly complex chemistry. Most people don't realize uh, milk can be so complex. It's just something that you take out of your refrigerator and drink it. And then there's all these sorts of nut milks and pea milks and all that kind of stuff. But the, the chemistry actually is really um, complex. And like any other natural component coming from plants or animals, milk has a, a nice composition of about and again, rough estimates, 87% water, 3% fat, 3% proteins, 4% carbohydrates, of which lactose is the main carbohydrate. I'm sure most of our listeners have heard about lactose and milk. And the remaining is less than 1% composed of minerals like calcium, potassium, magnesium, chlorine, acetate, various enzymes, other vitamins like vitamin D, and different gases. And this is cow milk, but also pretty much, you know, sheep milk and other kinds of milk. Yeah, it's, again, subtly different in compositions. For example, they may have a different protein balance. The two major protein families in milk are casein and whey. And so maybe there's different ratios there. Uh, This information comes from cow's milk. And I actually went back to my food science resources and pulled some of this information. And again, it's just a generality. It's there's lots of studies and information out there, and um, it's very interesting, though. So that's the composition of milk, and you'll notice I didn't list lactic acid in there. That's because fresh milk actually has very little lactic acid in it, and lactic acid is created by a bacterial process, so bacteria being present in the milk. This is something that's purposefully added. There's various strains of bacteria from the Lactobacillaceae family that help the milk undergo fermentation to create different textures, tastes, flavors. So for example, this is used to make yogurts, hard and soft cheeses, believe it or not, salamis, and then other fermented milk products like kefir and the Iranian drink. I think it's Iranian. Uh, do it's has a little carbonation in it, and um, it's really fun to drink it and tell people it's delicious and have them taste it because it has a, a very unique taste, and most people don't like it. So here's a case where we don't want to kill the microbes. Exactly right, and so the type of fermentation the milk undergoes uh, can vary by region or the type of product being made. So. There's a handful of bacteria that are used, uh, lactobacillus, leuconostoc, pediococcus, lactococcus, bifidobacterium. If you flip over your yogurt container, you've seen um, some of these listed here. But the bacteria, what they do is they eat the sugar that's in the milk, the carbohydrate, lactose. They digest it into, um, it's a disaccharide, so it breaks down into a glucose and a galactose molecule, and then they further eat that. And lactic acid is one of the byproducts created from their digestion process. So 
a little bit of lactic acid is produced. Again, the amount of lactic acid is dependent upon the type of product being made. There's actually a real strict set of standards uh, that determine how much lactic acid can be present um, in the milk. So for example, and again, this is a generalization, this is the codex standard. Fermented milk is 0.3% lactic acid, yogurt is 0.6%, kefir is 0.6%, and there are maximum limits allowed by geography. So for example, in Australia, they don't want milk to have more than 0.18% lactic acid released to the consumer. So I, I looked up a few other geographies as well in the range. The lowest I found was 0.18 with Australia, maximum being 0.4% lactic acid. So you can see it's really not a ton of lactic acid in the milk. And additionally, um, it's not really existing as lactic acid in the milk. It's existing as uh, lactate. Milk has around a neutral pH, let's say 6.5 of ordinary cow's milk that maybe we would buy at the store. And there's just not a lot of lactic acid existing in there. Again, we want to be around 0.2% allowable lactic acid once that lactate ion is dissociated. So how do we know how much lactic acid is in the milk uh, if there's a pH of 6.5? I, I can tell you there's probably 0% lactic acid in there. And that's because in chemistry, when we're talking about acids, we discuss things called a pKa value. And essentially that's the pH at which 50% of an acid is dissociated out of the form. So for example, the pKa of lactic acid is 3.86. That means if your milk is at a pH of 3.86, only 50% of the lactate in there will be dissociated. So if you have 1% lactate in that milk, and I made that up, that's just a number, I don't know, sure. um, you would only have 0.5% available as lactic acid if the pH were 3.86. So milk having a pH of 6.5, virtually there's 0% lactic acid in there, which is good. That's what we want because lactic acid makes milk taste sour. So the question was, can you take sour milk, which would have a lower pH? Milk sours when the pH starts to decline around 4.17, I think was the number I found that. Um, is really indicative of sour milk from one study. And yeah. it's when it smells in your refrigerator. It's when it starts to curdle because the proteins don't like that pH. They start to come out of solution. And can you put that on your face? And even if the pH were around four, you still won't have a lot of lactic acid present in the milk. So that's why I would not recommend putting that milk on your face. Also, the smell is horrific. It's <laughs> curdled. That, yeah. It's a yucky texture. And at the end of the day, even at a pH of four, any lactate that's available as lactic acid is really not a lot. And you're going to get more efficacy and bang for your buck using a lactic acid cream from a store. Now, I will say that I actually really like milk in general. Uh, milk protein in skincare is one of my favorite proteins and even for hair because it it just leaves the skin feeling really good, leaves hair feeling really good. It offers a lot of moisturizing properties. Um, so I wouldn't go for bad milk. I would go for good milk if you were going to use that, but I, I wouldn't keep it. It's something that I would 
maybe just put on my face. Right, milk at yeah. room temperature is going to spoil pretty quick and it's going to smell bad. Yeah. So I, I just don't recommend it for various the various reasons, mostly odor, coagulation, and you're just not getting a lot of lactic acid. Anyway, the whole point in regular milk is that you don't want lactic acid. And even in the fermented milk products, even the really fermented milk products, uh, there's just not a lot of allowable lactic acid in those products. And I think one of the problems with these at home or in your kitchen solutions are that any of the chemistry that comes from these food ingredients is already known by cosmetic companies and formulators. And the products that you can buy at the shelves they've sort of been optimized to give you the best results. They take the best of what you can find in your kitchen, uh, isolate it down to ingredients that are actually functional and safe, and that's what you get out of products. And so whenever you're using something at home or from your kitchen, the the effect you're going to get is always going to be less effective, in my view. All right, let's move on to our next question. No use crying over spilled milk anymore. (laughs) Indeed. This one comes to us from Taylor from Tampa. I saw this funny tweet today below, and I laughed out loud. So she included the the tweet, which was amusing. But it was, uh, her question is, she says, I've never heard of fish scales in makeup. If fish scales, and more importantly, shellfish, are indeed used in cosmetics, would someone with a shellfish allergy have a reaction? What type or reaction might occur? I understand you're not allergist, but maybe you're familiar with the subject. And my mom has a severe self shellfish allergy, so I'll refrain from doing patch tests on her for now. <laughs> yeah. Well, it turns out, Taylor, that indeed fish scales are used in some makeup products. There is an ingredient called guanine, which is derived from fish scales. Now, guanine is that uh, one of the base pairs in DNA, right? You know, from Gattaca, that's the G in the (laughs) GA. I don't know how many of our listeners have seen that movie, but it's not actually pure fish scales ground up and put in. It's a modified form of the fish scales, right, Perry? Exactly. It is modified uh, fish scales. But anyway, these these ingredients are processed in such a way that it produces a pearly iridescent effect, and that's used to make products like body washes or shampoos shiny. It gives that, what we call in the business, a pearlescent effect. It's just one of the things used to make something pearlescent. So don't, don't freak out if you see something that's pearlescent and think it's fish scales in there. There's a lot of things that can cause this effect, but this ingredient is used for that. Yes, that's a that's an excellent point. So in makeup, anyway, uh, this ingredient provides the shimmering effect in eyeshadows and in nail polishes. Guanine is actually one of the few legal, naturally occurring colorants uh, on the FDA-approved list. It can be used generally in cosmetics anywhere and including around the eye area. That's one of the restricted areas, but this ingredient coming from DNA, I guess, is uh, uh, makes it safe enough. Now, as far as the shellfish goes, there are some ingredients that do make their way into cosmetics that come from shellfish. Chitosan and chitin are natural polymers found in many crustaceans, and shrimp is one of those. That they, the, the, the 
chi the chitin is what is the protein that makes up the shell of the shrimp. So anyway, the shrimp shells are a source of chitosin that raw material suppliers will use to create chitosin-derived ingredients. Chitosin derivatives are used for hair and skin conditioning ingredients, and they're also film formers, that, and they can be used in hair styling products or uh, mousses or that kind of thing. You might see one of these listed as chitosan ascorbate or something like that in the ingredient listings, but also sometimes chitin and chitosan are hidden components of other ingredients and you won't see them on the label. And that can make it very challenging. Now, related to the question of whether there, that's a problem for somebody with uh, shellfish allergies, in researching the question, I didn't find a lot of instances of a reaction, but there was one reported instance in the Journal of the Annals of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology of shellfish anaphylaxis as thought to be caused by the chitin that was found in the acrylic nail glue of this patient. Mm. Anaphylaxis is a serious medical condition that requires immediate medical attention, but if you have an allergy to these things, less severe symptoms might be an exper experiencing itching, uh, a swollen face, a hives, a coughing, or sneezing. So while this might not be a problem for most people, if you have a shellfish allergy, I certainly would avoid products that contain chitin. It seems like the lowest risk approach. All right, thanks for that question. Looks like we have another audio question. Hi, Perry and Valerie. I just wanted to start off by saying that I love your podcast and I look forward to it each week. Um, I did a quick search and I don't think you've answered this question before. My question is, do you need a spatula or a scoop to get skincare products out of jars? You read a lot on the internet about how when you stick your fingers in the jar, it can contaminate your products. It just seems that if you have clean hands and your product is not expired and has a legitimate preservative system, the need for a spatula or a scoop just doesn't really seem necessary and kind of seems like a waste. But I wanted to hear your thoughts. Looking forward to hearing your answer. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for the question. First, the problem with products packaged in jars or tubs where you have to take a lid off is that they're exposed to the air much more than if a product were to be put in a squeeze bottle or a bottle with a pump on it. More surface area exposure of the product means there's going to be more exposure to microbes and other bacteria in the product. There is the additional problem caused when you dip your fingers into the product to get it out. Your fingers, of course have bacteria on them. And so when you put them into the product, you're adding more bacteria to the system. You know, Valerie, uh, I, when I worked uh, for formulating on the VO5 line, we had these flip caps, right? And people, people would use these flip caps and they would leave the cap open. I never understood why you wouldn't put the cap back down. Why wouldn't you snap it shut? That's the easiest type of cap to use. I know, and they wouldn't snap it shut. It's like, you're supposed to snap it shut. Some I've discovered that there are some people who just do not shut the bottles once they have them. Shut the bottles, people. It keeps the bacteria out. Yeah, yeah, especially in the shower where you have just ambient water that can slowly aggregate into the product. And again, where you have water, you have microorganisms. Ugh. So um, the question is, will using a spatula or scoop reduce the chances that your product will get contaminated? As you suspect, the answer is probably not. 
If you have clean hands and the product has a proper preservation system, a spatula or scoop isn't going to provide you much benefit there. And even if you have not quite as clean hands, if the product is properly preserved, as we talked about in the beauty news section, a proper preservative system should be able to still protect the product from adulteration. When products are tested for microbial or preservative efficacy test, you use a a big slug of microbes, like a much more, a much higher amount than you normally get and to test the preservative. So it's, it's a lot higher level. So your preservative will withstand that higher level, it should withstand the normal levels you're going to get uh, in regular use. And as you mentioned before, Perry, and even in the Fast Company article, one of the problems in the beauty industry these days is that companies are using preservative systems that are not as robust as they used to be, and products are becoming contaminated. This, I, I call it an artificial restriction that consumers have really placed on companies that they don't want parabens or nasties, or anything like that. Formaldehyde donors, right? Exactly. And the end result is that products just aren't able to protect against the reality of the whole world, is that microorganisms exist, and they want to be eating all the yummy stuff um, in your product. So um, as you mentioned, most companies uh, test for this through preservative testing. And so if the company typically bigger companies are very good at this. If they're using a proper preservative system, a spatula or scoop won't provide you much additional benefit. And if you're using a product that doesn't have a proper preservative system or uses a weak preservative system, then a scoop or spatula also isn't going to provide you much protection because those little devices also have microorganisms on them. So when you dip them into the product, it's samesies. You're you're just adding more microbes to the product. So while you might like the experience of scooping rather than touching your product, it's highly unlikely this is going to provide you any extra protection from contamination. And in our view, this is just the kind of advice a beauty product marketer might give to enhance the experience of using the product. It might elevate it a little more that it's more luxurious. And that feels a little special. Yeah. Yeah. And I personally the scoops are a love-hate relationship for me because A, you, they get messy and then you have to wipe them off right. and then you have to find them on the counter and then you got stuff on the counter if you were in a rush. Uh, but also I like them because nothing grosses me out more than dipping my hands into a jar and getting product under, under my fingernail. <laughs> I hate that. So if, if you don't want stuff under your fingernails, then maybe a scoop is for you. Yeah. (laughs) Or maybe I'm not doing it right and you guys can provide me some tips. (laughs) All right. Looks like we got one more. Take it away, Perry. Oh, I see. You wanted me to read this one because they mentioned you. (laughs) Hey, Beauty Brains. I'm so glad that you're back. Valerie is a great addition to the team. Thank you. So nice to have a weekly source of intelligent, informed beauty discussion again. Ah, that's so nice. All right. Let's get to the question here. Um, So Claire wants to know, uh, she says, specifically, I recently began using the Maybelline Superstay Matte Ink Liquid Lipstick and was amazed at how long-wearing and comfortable they are. What about the formula makes these so transfer-proof and flexible? As a woman of science, I have ruled out magic as a possible explanation. (laughs) That was was a good elimination. (laughs) 
Also, question within a question, if I put an SPF lip balm under these lipsticks, am I actually getting the approximately two hours of sun protection that I would get if it had been applied the SPF lip balm alone? Stay warm. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah, here in Chicago, we're trying to stay warm. <laughs> Keep, ah, why? I, I promise not to complain about the weather, so I yeah. will not. All right, I looked at the ingredient list of this product. But you know, as an aside, Valerie, I just wanted to give kudos to companies like Maybelline who list all of their ingredients on their websites. Have you ever gone to websites where they say, click here for the ingredients, and then they just list like three like featured ingredients and not the whole ingredient list? Oh, that's the worst. I mean, if you're going to provide the information, just provide what's on the label. Provide ingredients, please. (laughs) Makes it so much easier to be a cosmetic chemist and a uh, podcaster about beauty products. (laughs) Anyway, uh, a quick review of the ingredients shows that this product is mostly a silicone-based formula. It has dimethicone, trimethylsiloxysilicate. It has a dimethicone cross-polymer. There's solvents. It also has paraffin, which can help blend the colorants a bit and then it gives the product a more cushioned feel when you apply it. The reason that it lasts so long is basically because these silicones are really good at repelling water. Then there are the polymers that are in there that help the product to adhere better to the the skin of the lip. And so the the product isn't left behind on other things like drinking glasses or other people's lips. So this, this product really is the answer to the question about what makes this product work. It's really those silicone polymers. And the mattifying comes from silica silylate, which also could probably help with some of the adherence that you're seeing with the silicones. Yeah, if you, if you like the feel of silicone and the shine, uh, this product will certainly do that. So I see the other question about the SPF of a lip balm. If you put that lip balm on first and then this, this one on top... See, when you put a sunscreen product on your skin, the product is supposed to create a protective film all along your skin. The process of letting the product dry, as they say, you know, put it on and then let it dry, this is actually helping to set up that film to give an even film, and that's going to add to the protections. So when you put a lip balm with an SPF, the film is this waxy layer that goes on your lips. So I guess if you put another product on top of that, this lipstick could actually break the consistency of the film that you laid down, and so maybe that might provide some gaps in the uh, the SPF protection layer. You know, but without testing it, it's really difficult to say exactly. I'm I'm skeptical that you would see any real benefit different or SPF measurable SPF differences. It's it's not going to affect it that. It's not like you're wiping the SPF ingredients off and then putting this other one on it's they're still going to be there they might not be arranged in the the optimal way to provide protection and i think too if it's providing coloring through pigments on the skin you're going to have some intrinsic spf value there even if it's not being measured if it's more like a lip stain probably not but it's really hard to say because a what what else are you putting on your lips are you a lip licker do you eat your lipstick Did you wait for it to dry, as you said, and form this layer and then put it over it? There's just so many parameters that could impact. Right. When a a company makes that, say, two-hour SPF claim, the way they supported that claim is they were under some very specific lab conditions with the amount that's added there and the amount of sun exposure or simulated sun exposure. 
And it's unlikely that a person under real-life conditions is going to perfectly mimic that amount. People notoriously put on too little SPF uh, to get really the values that you you think you're buying. Mm. Well, Claire, thanks so much for the question. I might head to the store and give this lipstick a try. I always love product recommendations, so can't wait to see what you love about it. Thanks everyone for listening. If you get a chance, please go over to iTunes and leave us a review. That will help other people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. Also, you can follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at thebeautybrains2018. On Twitter, we're at thebeautybrains. And we also have a Facebook page, which we sometimes post to. The Beauty Brains are also now on Patreon. If you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way to do it. This help keeps, helps keep the show going and avoid any of those pesky advertisements that we find so maddening in other podcasts that we listen to. And I think we actually had one of our question askers today thank us for keeping us unbiased without sponsors. She commented it was so rare and that's why they like us so much. So please support that's us nice. on please support us on Patreon just to help cover basic costs of keeping the show and our website going. Go to patreon.com forward slash the beauty brains and subscribe. All right, Valerie. Thanks for a good show. Thank you, Perry. And remember, everybody, be brainy about your beauty. Kittens. <laughs>